Thank you all, brother. So about 16 years ago, we took a trip to Southern California. <laughs> and uh, it was a really memorable trip for sure. Um, I wish it could fit into the message this morning, but it just doesn't. There's no way to make it work. So let me just tell the story and then I'll preach the message. <laughs> it was a great time. Uh, we, had a, we had an odd, my brother's older, so he was going through a midlife crisis more than I was, but uh, he desired to go surfing. Um, and uh, we, we had a tremendous meeting. Honestly, we had fulfilled all that we needed to. Uh, Lord worked a pivotal watershed event out in our life under the preaching that we went out there to hear. So we had enough. And, uh, and so he said, I go a fishing. And I said, I go with the also. Uh, and so it wasn't fishing though. It was a surfing. And so we, we got, we rented these big surfboards and, uh, wetsuits. We were grossly overweight. It was hideous looking. We literally went running down the beach in a V formation. Um, he was leading a couple of guys on either wing and um, it was all pastures, and um, we, we entered into that water, and uh, my br- big, gigantic surfboards, you know back the Gidget days, you know, gigantic surfboards, and he's running out, and um, I still remember, because I was trailing behind him quite a ways, and I'm just getting into the water, and when he's further out there, he looks over his shoulder, and he's got this big, cheesy, toothy grin uh, that's, uh, that's just wide eyed. And he looks at me like, this is the best thing ever. And I'm so glad you're here to enjoy it with me. And I'm looking just beyond him at the wall of foam that is coming his way. I'm, I'm telling you, it looked like a tsunami that was coming his way. And I'm thinking, oh no. And I think he saw my face because it caused him to have to turn around. And he turned around and then he snapped right back around and the eyes have changed. <laughs> Panic is on his eyes. They're super wide. The smile is gone. And he's got every expression on his face is to say, what am I supposed to do? Now, I didn't tell him to do what he was going to do, but I, I would have if, if, if I was given the opportunity because it was the worst possible thing he could have done. He takes the surfboard to protect himself and puts it in front of his face. And I'm standing about 20 feet behind him, and I watch that surfboard, just the wall of foam that hit him, and he's bracing with everything that he's got. Just arms just snap, and that board just smacks him right in the face. I'm telling you, his facial expression came through the other side of the board. I mean, the wave even hit me. I mean, it took me for a tumble. And I'm hysterical under the water. I mean, I'm just in stitches under the water laughing. And I, I I get back up and I'm looking around for my brother. And it was like, if you remember the old Jaws movie, you remember when, when the Great White went under and you just saw that? you know, that sort of uh, 55-gallon drum container pop-up. That's what happened with the surfboard. There was no evidence of my brother anywhere, but the surfboard just goes poof, and it's floating. Now, it's anchored to his ankle, so it's just staying there. Uh, And I thought, oh, no, this is bad. And then he he comes up, and he he looks around for a second. He doesn't reach for his board. He doesn't pick his board up. He just drags it behind him. (laughs) 
I mean, that's, that was it. It was done. He didn't enter into the water again. It was all over. It was completely done. He sat on the beach, and me and a couple of other preachers that were out there messing around on these surfboards, we just laughed the whole day. I mean, it, the waves were okay. The surfing was okay. But that memory was just wonderful. I mean, it was <laughs> wonderful. And his memory of it is real sketchy. Uh, but... But, I mean, it was just wonderful. I enjoy just sometimes. If It's one of those things that if you're having a down day, I just go back there. And I think, <laughs> that day was so wonderful. Man, I'll tell you, that was beautiful. You, that, the Lord just really touched our hearts today just with the piano, didn't it? I mean, you played your second-string quarterback, but I think she took the position, don't she? I mean, I mean, we love Lynn for sure, but, man, that was blessing. Blessed my heart, and uh, the Lord just really has done a work in our families, and we, it's, it's hard, it's, it's easy, I should say, to forget, you know, from whence we've come, um, but uh, man, by the grace of God, uh, it, it's just, it's by the grace of God, and we, we just rejoice with seeing some of the, the next generation uh, serving the Lord, and so we rejoice with that, and and uh, I'm, I'm not. Uh, I'm, I'm going to uh, be in Psalm 22 this morning. Psalm 22, and uh, I just want to. I just want to preach on the cross. You know, I mean, we've had so many things that that steal our conversation right now that are happening in our world, um, and and we have to engage in these conversations. And it gets us a little feisty, and it gets us a little off. It gets us a little spirited. But um, I just. Uh, there were several different things. I haven't been here a long time, and so there's a lot of different places I could go. Uh, but it just felt like, man, I just want to go to the cross. I, I really do. And it might seem odd to be taking you over to the Old Testament to go to the cross. But those of you who are Bible students, it's not too odd. Psalm 22. You know, whenever we think of the cross, we're usually drawn to the gospel. So we can see a panoramic view of, uh, of the cross from Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and you get a little more perspective of what's going on. But uh, it's tremendous when you go back a thousand years before Calvary into the ministry of inspiration through the pen of David. While he is writing under the inspiration of the Spirit of God, he is penning things about himself that sort of leap and go a thousand years into the future. And he begins to pen details about Calvary. And the most powerful thing about this is that the details that David gives are from the first person of the Lord Jesus Christ. So while the Gospels are looking up at the cross, the Lord Jesus Christ in Psalm 22 is giving you experience from the cross. While the disciples hear, I thirst, Psalm 22 says, my tongue clave it to the sides of my mouth. So you're hearing the, the full perspective, and it's powerful. I'm going to try. I might not get beyond Psalm 22, but I'm going to try to get all the way to Psalm 24. Because what we're going to do, if we're able to, is we'll see him in, in chapter 22 as the gracious Savior. But then you'll see him in chapter 23 as the good shepherd. And then you'll see him in chapter 24 as the glorious king. And it's just Boom, boom, boom. And while David is circumstantially affected by different things, Christ is overtaking the event, and you are learning more about significant details about the person of Jesus Christ. 
Psalm 22, here we look at first the gracious Savior. It might be all we get to. So we have a 20, this, this beautiful detail of the, uh, of the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus Christ a thousand years before it happens. David sees it with remarkable detail. And this wonderful poem and, uh, of suffering, and there is also praise that will flow out of this. And Psalm 22 is quoted seven times in the New Testament. Every time is a reference to Jesus Christ. The crucifixion was something that David never could have possibly understood. He's just writing. Under the inspiration of the Spirit of God, he could not have understood what this all meant. So this crucifixion was not the kind of punishment that David would have been familiar with. It hasn't, it didn't exist. It wasn't a thing. So Psalm 22 breaks out in two parts. The first 21 verses is a prayer. And then the second part is verse number 22 to verse number 31, and it's a praise. And uh, both of those things are significant. Prayer and praise, we start with the prayer, verse number 1, all the way down to verse number 21. The scene is the Messiah, and he's on the cross. Yes, I say it is events in David's life, but clearly in all of that distress and all of his circumstantial situations, we're going somewhere that is far beyond David's situation. It's undoubtedly a reference to the Lord Jesus Christ and the crucifixion. It's, uh, it's a limited fulfillment in the sense of David's uh, experience, but its fullest fulfillment is a reference to Jesus Christ. So we're going to skip David altogether. We're just going to go right to Christ. And we're going to see Psalm as a messianic psalm dealing with the cross and the prayer that is prayed from the cross, this deep petition that is spoken from the cross. While he did not open his mouth before men, Psalm 22 lets you know that he is truly opening his mouth before God. That there is a deep petition that is going on from the cross, and I want you to see it, its source. And in Psalm 22, the first thing that we look at is in verse number one there, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Why art thou so far from helping me? In the words of my roaring, this is a deep feeling of separation, if you will. So the first five verses that we see within this psalm are supernatural darkness. It comes about the ninth hour and Jesus is pained in that ninth hour by the silence of God. God the Father, his silence. He had never experienced that silence before. He had never experienced that separation, that kind of separation before. He cries out and it is not responded to. And the deep reality of that comes forth when his cry is spoken, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Now, I don't lay claim to fully understanding. I just accept it. I don't lay claim to fully comprehend what the separation means. I just accept it because it says it. That settles it. But I understand that uh, there's a lot I don't understand about what that expression meant. The Trinity is not, is not fractured in any way, shape, or form, but yet in some way a separation is experienced. And so the word roaring here is a reference of an inward groaning that Christ often expressed. No doubt in that reference of groaning within him, that roaring, this inward, as bearing the burden of the separation that he's experienced of the Heavenly Father. My God, my God, 
it's, is, is expressed here. I cry in the daytime, but thou hearest not. And in the night season, and I'm not silent. And so in verse number two. So this turmoil or this struggle or this trial of his heart, he knew that God had heard him. He knew that the expression was rewarded. He recognized that, uh, that he was shouting out or crying out at the top of his voice in a prayer. And yet at this point, the prayer goes vocal before the audience, but then it goes back to silence before the audience, but it is still being uttered before God. So there is no lapse of faith, there is no broken confidence, but there is the recognition that a separation has occurred. There is this deep reality, but yet a cry out, I cry out in the night season, in Psalm, as I say, 22.2. I cry out in the daytime, but thou, uh, but thou hearest not. And in the night season, and I'm not silent. Can you not embody that reality that the cross takes place in the daytime, in the night season? And yet from that experience, with tremendous detail, a thousand years before the time of Christ, unarguably, a thousand years before the time of Christ, he accounts for the darkness that Josephus writes about as a historian, not a biblicist, a historian, when he accounts for the darkness of the hour in the midday, and he says, surely the Son of God must be dying today. And so the turmoil and the struggle and the trial of his heart, he knew that God had heard him and he was shouting out at the top of his voice. You hear the groaning, the inward groaning reached God when it was daytime and it reached God when it was supernaturally dark, unearthly kind of darkness that brought on the season, as it were. But again, there's no lapse of faith. In verse number three through verse number five, but thou art holy. Now it have it is the praise of Israel. Our father trusted in thee. They trusted and didst deliver them. They cried unto thee and they were delivered. They trusted in thee and were not confounded. So thou art holy, which affirms God. I understand, I understand it. That is interesting, isn't it? I almost sort of believe that the cry that Jesus Christ cried from the cross when he said, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? I almost believe that it's sort of a rhetorical question. It is so that the Bible student, perhaps maybe so that the Bible student could go back to Psalm 22 saying, I remember reading that, and that's a messianic psalm. And so then you could go to Psalm 22, and you could read about, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Why? Because, in verse number three, thou art holy. So clearly something that is going on at the crucifixion of Jesus Christ is unmeasurably unholy is it is unmeasurably ungodly. It is awful, gross, vile sin that is being accounted for on the cross of Calvary, and holiness cannot participate in it. It's so deep. It's so profound. As the Lord cries out unto thee and delivered thee, they trusted in thee and were confounded. Thou art holy. That affirms God. I understand why I must put, why you must put yourself apart from this experience. Your holiness cannot be compromised. Your, your holiness cannot be touched by the sins of this world. It would be as if you, uh, as, as Uzzah reached back to steady the ark of God when it was unstable upon the cart, the new cart, 
And in his sincerity, he reached back to touch the ark of God as if to say, my sincerity should make it okay to touch the holiness of God. Sinful man coming into contact with a holy God. And what did we find out? There will be no compromise between the sinfulness of man and the holiness of God. And Jesus Christ embodies that with that one cry, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Because thou art holy. That all the sincere men of this world that seek some other way besides Jesus Christ, seek some other compromise, will find that their unholy hands cannot come in contact with a holy God. They will fall dreadfully short and they will hear the dreadful words that say, Depart from me, for I never knew you. And so we find here, and we find this consistent throughout Scripture, the holiness of God cannot compromise. Christ understands that. I bear the sin. I bear the sin. The holiness of God must be separated. He reaffirms the holy character of God. He reaffirms that throughout all of history, God has never forsaken his people and he will not forsake his sin. He will not forsake, excuse me, his son, but he must pull back in holiness. It's profound. As I say, I do not claim to fully understand it. I accept it. So we find here a, this throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament is a, and as you, as you found, I hope, in your own experience, that when you come into a situation which seems to have no resolution, when you are disoriented and there's no explanation on why it is occurring, when you, you don't have to fall into the sin of doubting, you just accept God for who he is. And that's what Christ is doing. I'm ex- I accept the situation. There is, no, there is no sin of doubt going on here. The son reasons with the father. And he says, why hast thou forsaken me? Because thou art holy. Because you are holy. And so instead of son questioning whether God pities him or the son praises God for a proper reaction to holiness. This is not a defamation of character to the name of God. This is a proper declaration to say, because you are holy, you need, you need to be separated from this experience. It must be gone alone. Unbelievable. It's unbelievable. It's sort of that experience when you recognize the the sin of Achan. Remember when Joshua exposed the sin of Achan? But, um, you know, there was just, there was just sort of this practice of, of trying to draw, uh, straws to find out where the sin fell to. And then Achan's family falls to Achan. Well, you know, I mean, I've gotten caught a few times in, in school and you know, you give that look like, what, me, who, what? Even though I know I did it, um, and I, I, but I didn't, want to, I didn't want anybody else to know I did it. So, you know, you give that look. Achan has the opportunity to do that. In fact, it would appear, as you look at the reading, that that's what he's doing. Like he's thinking, oh, are you kidding me? He doesn't, God doesn't say the stuff is that, that Achan's guilty and the stuff is hitting beneath his stuff. The sin is hitting beneath his stuff in his tent. God doesn't do that. God just lets them go through their process, and they go through their process, and it falls down to Achan. And then Joshua looks at Achan, and he says, all right, you got one final act. We're not going to be any, we're not going to be merciful here. You're going to be judged for this. But you got one final act. You know what he said? Give God the glory. Make confession. Don't you go to your grave impugning the name of God. Don't you let this people around here sit out here and think, man, what an awful God. 
that he would judge this family this way. So Achan does, in his one final act, glorify the name of God. He says, it is us. We did do this. And I'll be specific enough to tell you that what we took is in my tent. It's beneath my stuff. And it's in the ground. And God's name was not impugned by the final act of Achan. Oh, he still had judgment come down upon him. In the final act of the Lord Jesus Christ, he is not defaming the name of the Father by saying, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken? He is agreeing with the Father. He vocalizes that for all to hear. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken? Go back to the scriptures. You'll know the answer. As Christ knew that answer, because thou art holy. It's a staggering thought. God is a holy God, a covenant-keeping God, and, uh, and he has not broke his covenant with his son. His eternal covenant with the Trinity is not broken. He is affirming in his mind that God is not looking for the simple reason because, he's not, because he is holy. And God will put together again, and his eternal relationship will be completely reassembled in, uh, in holy, holiness will not be compromised. Thou, I love this, he held the, the rock of divine character. It's interesting to me that in verse number three, thou, and then he says thou again in verse number four, then he says thee in verse number five, and then again in thee is verse number uh, uh, five is listed once again. Every one of those are emphatic use of a pronoun affirming affirmation to God to strengthen him. God, you will strengthen me. God, you will, you will encourage me. God, you will lift me up. God, you will not forsake me. God, you will not, I will not lose confidence in the character of God. But for this moment, it must be separated. That's the source of this cry. It comes out of a, out of a heart of separation. But then the source of this cry goes on, and it's a heart of scorn. In Psalm 22, 6, but I am a worm. Now, again, David, it's not, David again is, is leaping forward to the character of Jesus Christ. And from the person of Christ, he says, I am a worm. And no man, a reproach, of, a, a reproach of men and despise of the people. That's an amazing language for the Son of God. A worm. No man. Less than human. A reproach. Despised. He's a worm. Isaiah 52, 4 says his visage or his face was so marred more than any man. His form was, was, uh, was so just irrecognizable as a man. There's no beauty in him, as Isaiah 53 says. That's odd language, isn't it, for the Son of God? But they had beaten him raw. They had crippled his body, in a sense. They had crushed him down with thorns upon his face. They have torn that flesh. Uh, and they have mocked him. They had, uh, they had jeered him. They ripped his beard out of his face. The mass of blood and effect that has gone on. He is now to the place that he is despised. He was rejected. There is a, now a scorn that is going on in Psalm 22, 7. And they that see me laugh me to scorn. They shoot out the lip. They shake the head. There's an interesting thought there that he's a worm in verse number six. I'm a worm. What's he saying? Well, a worm would be at the least of all things. I'm something awful looking. I'm undesirable. And now they are, they are mocking me with their lip. It's unbelievable to me. In verse number seven, and all they that laugh shall meet a scorn. They shoot out the lip. They shake their heads. Can you imagine that? 
Exact, that's exactly what took place in Matthew 27, 39. Passing by, they reviled them, wagging their heads. Shooting out the lip. That's that. They're constantly carrying on. It's just staggering to me. Wait, remember when Peter reached for his sword? He was willing to take on the entire Roman army and his self-confidence. And he's, he, he pulls that sword to take on those Roman soldiers. And remember what Christ said to him? Now, this is just right after the Lord says, I am. That's all he says. I am. Are you the... I am. And the band of very well-trained soldiers trip back and fall upon themselves. And they're staggered over. And here they are. They're disoriented. And they're just getting up saying, what, was, what just hit us? What was that power that just hit us when he said, I am? And they, they now, as they would get their bearings and get back to where they were on their feet, they would hear the conversation that Jesus is having with Peter when, Pete, when he looks to Peter and he says, don't you know I could call a legion of angels and have this whole army decimated? I mean, in my language, but don't you know? Well, there's only one of those angels took out 72,000 men of the Old Testament army and of an Old Testament army. And now here's this band of soldiers saying that, man, he could call a whole legion of them. Powerful. I would imagine if I was a Roman soldier, I'd think, we need to be careful, guys. I don't think we know exactly who we're dealing with here. But can you imagine the perspective from the angels? You know, I mean, I mean, as they're standing on the ready, just, I mean, as they're holding on to their sheathed swords and saying, just say the word. Just say the word. Call on us and we will avenge them. Go ahead. And while they're mocking the Lord Jesus Christ and they're wagging their heads and little puny man is saying all the things that little puny man can come up with and they're mocking the visage of Christ and they're jeering and they're carrying on the way they're carrying on. The legion that he spoke of is saying, just give the command. The son of man would not give that command. The son of man kept silence. The son of man is calming the entire army and host of heaven by saying, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. Steady, easy. There's a third source of what Jesus had cried, not only his separation and his scorn, but thirdly, I believe, his solitude. Psalm 22, 9 and 10 says, But thou art he that took me out of the womb. And this is a reference of supernatural. Thou didst uh, make me hope when I was upon my mother's breast. I was cast upon thee in the womb. Thou art my God from my mother's belly. So he goes back into the unique conception of a birth by which he entered the human world. And, uh, and by how he has lived and said, you've never been outside of my experience. There's never been a disconnect. In effect, you brought me into this world as Hebrews accounts for the body was made for that purpose and I've entered into that a body for me. In, uh, and so you're, you've been a part of it. In other words, the Lord is saying, I had my hope in you and that, that senses the solitude now that he's been left with. Be not far from me. Trouble is near for there is none to help. There's the solitude. Where are the disciples? Well, the disciples have forsook him and fled. There's some incognito loyalists around him, but they're, they're hidden. Prophets had said, smite the shepherd and the sheep will scatter. 
And now he's left alone. No disciples come to his aid. There's no, no one of loyalty that is there to speak for his defense. He is not defending himself, and he is not being defended. Nobody speaks up for his cause. Nobody reacts to the scorners. He has been left in absolute solitude, and that becomes the source of prayer as well from David's perspective Letting him know that I've been left now in absolute solitude. Those that I have spent three and a half years under the stars with. That I have kept, secured, that I have fed, that I have protected, that I have guided, that I have spoken with, that I have, uh, that I have been committed to, have all been forsaken. They've all forsaken me. They've left him completely in absolute solitude. And it is from that solitude he cries. The fourth sur- sur- uh, source of cry here comes of a satanic host in verse number 12 and 13. Many bulls compassed me. Strong bulls of Bashan have beset round. They gaped upon me with their mouths as raving and a roaring lion. And I believe this is a reference to the satanic host. Some would say it's a reference to the people that were around, but I would say the people are under satanic influences even if they're not aware of it. But I believe it is a satanic host. And while Jesus Christ has been left on the cross, separated from the Father, left by his brethren, forsaken by his followers, and he is on the cross now in absolute solitude, in absolute separation, there to go it alone, and he cries from these positions, just understand this, that it is this time that the satanic host of heaven, the fiends of hell, would have been perched upon the cross. To be that close to evil, to be that close to absolute wretchedness, they've compassed me about. They're all about me. The fiends of hell, the darkness of all that hell could conjure up has gathered around that cross that day. Unbelievable darkness, the influences that are going on, that are, that are speaking up such vileness, such evil. Very few people break out into some sort of righteous language. Only I see the thief on the right that came to reality that I happen to be. The grace of God with the final moments of my life located just probably a foot and a half or two feet from the only person that can do anything about my eternal destination. And I know who you must be. And so when you come into your kingdom, remember me. But all in all, that's very little, very little of that breakout is going on. Hell is encompassing that day. And Jesus Christ is beneath its shadow. He cries from being encompassed by so much evil. Remember when he was in the presence of evil on the Mount of Temptation? It was at that hour that the angel host of heaven, when it was overcame and restored him and restrengthened him in that time, because being so close to evil is so just drawling and draining. And now he's talking and he's speaking from underneath this demonic host. And Christ came, can perceive that and knows that. And they're gaping their mouths and they're raving like lions. Verse number 16, the dogs have compassed me in Psalm twenty-two, sixteen. The assembly of the wicked have enclosed me. They pierced my hands and feet. I believe he's sensing the host of hell. I believe he sees the serpent that is now fulfilling Genesis 3.15, taking hold of that heel. 
All of hell is gathered around the cross. As what, and I believe that's why Paul had said that, um, that, uh, that, that in Colossians that he tells us that Jesus died on the cross and he triumphed over the host of demons, of devils. So his prayer rose out of separation. It rose out of scorn. And by this prayer, it's a roaring. It's a deep roaring. He's crying out. Though the man is not hearing because he's not crying out to man. He's crying it out to God. And the prayer on fifthly, I believe, is a prayer that Christ rose out of just suffering. In verse number 14, I am poured out like water. My bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted in the midst of my bowels. I believe here that uh, he cried out to God because of the tremendous anguish of suffering. He's described here this graphic crucifixion, what he's going through, the physical torments of the crucifixion, poured out like water, heart like wax. The idea is that all the fluids of the body are drying up. It's ceasing to function. The great physician knows exactly what is occurring in his anatomy. He's accounting for it. He's giving details about it. All my bones are out of joint. And anybody who examines the method of the crucifixion recognizes the points of piercing, where they occurred, what had happened, and these, uh, his hands and feet, and how glorious it must have been for Satan to put his hand over that Roman soldier's hand and pierce the heel of Jesus Christ. And uh, he has experienced this deep, utter groaning of suffering, But, praise the Lord, he is also triumphing over evil at that very hour. My strength is dried up like postured in verse number 15. That's to say that I'm like broken pottery. That's to be discarded. Body has been so unbelievably uh, bruised and beaten. The Messiah on the cross sees himself the same way as a broken, wrinkled, splintered, dried piece of clay. My tongue cleaveth to to my jaws. As it were, I thirst Verse 16, I'm pierced, my hands, my feet. How a thousand years before the crucifixion of Christ could you have such detail except God be involved in this? Such detail. This is a thousand years. This is many, many, many hundreds of years before the instrument of the cross has ever been introduced as its form of torture. It's not on the ideas of man's minds to come up with something so evil as the cross. And they nailed him there. They pierced his hands. They pierced his feet. I tell my bones. They look. They stare upon me. As the gospels are looking up, Jesus looking down says, I see my bones. In other words, he's slumped over. He's experienced the deep agony of the cross. And he is naked before this horrid mob, exposed before the creature. And so there we find another source of this cry of his heart. And uh, I would say this, I would call this the lack of sensitivity, the absence of any sensitivity. You know, at some point in time, you feel like somebody will say, hey, enough. Even if you're not a believer, at some point in time, you would, you'd feel like this is enough. But there is so much evil gathered at Calvary that there is a lack of total sensitivity. I see that in verse number 18. Now, I was blown away when some of the things, um, I went to Israel with, with my brother last year. Um, and, uh, and, and when I went there, I, I thought through my messages. And as, as I was checking them off, you know, while I was like, okay, that one won't work anymore. 
<laughs> I was like, doesn't work anymore. I mean, it just doesn't fit. Uh, it, it, I had it, this painted an entirely different way. And one of the places that we went to where it's like, man, this is totally different than what I imagined was actually where they believe the Lord was crucified, a place of a skull. And several of the things that I thought just, it's very much along the roadside. And they explain that. They give that detail. That the purpose of the roadside is to have the greatest effect. That is, you are going to pass by. You're going to see what the Romans did to this one who has defied Roman law. Um, And so that's what the effect is. The other thing is that it's not very lifted up. It's really the cross would have only been just a few feet off the ground. So you're not this, this vivid picture of what you would see on the movies or all these other things uh, that depict the cross of Calvary being a very distant experience and very high, but it was just lifted a little off the ground, not very much, just a little off the ground, just a little above the height of, uh, of, of a man, you know, just above. So, so the activity that's going on is very in close proximity to the person that was being crucified. So in all of this horrible, horrible depravity of man that's being demonstrated then you've got these Roman soldiers and, and uh, not comp- comprehending what's taking place. So for the history of mankind, this is that day that the Lord hath made. When you look at that statement, that's also a messianic psalm. And it is speaking of Calvary to say, this day is the day the Lord hath made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. For all of the history of mankind, starting at Genesis chapter number 3, verse number 15, it speaks of the seed of the woman, speaking of Jesus Christ. And that seed picks up more and more definition as you travel through the scriptures. And then finally, by the time of Isaiah, it's fully painted picture, but yet more specificity even gets added to it. And before long, you know exactly timelines, you know appearance, uh, you know the place of birth, you know so much. The entire history of man is all about this one day. This day that the Lord hath made, we will rejoice and be glad in it. It's building for this climactic event. And so here are these Roman soldiers in Psalm 18 talks about them. I mean, they got a, they got a thousand years to be born, but Psalm 18 talks about them. And it says in Psalm, Psalm 22, 18, they, and that's those Roman soldiers, they part my garment among them. They cast lots upon my vesture here beneath the shadow of the, of the transcending event of the history of the world. Beneath the shadow of the only one that you can come to and find the one place that you can have access to the holiness of God. The only place for history past and future to come to by faith is the Lord Jesus Christ, the cross of Calvary. And they're, they're so careless about anything that's going on. They're like, hey, do you want his, you want his uh, garments or... I think I'd like to, man, look at the, and he's right here. You see the intense, intensity of the lack of sensitivity. What, all right, well, let's, let's cast lots for it. If we, you know, if you want, I want, I want it too. And well, I mean, come on, you know, I mean, I, I deserve this. Do you just, come on, you've got an, and that's the conversation beneath Calvary. There is absolutely no sensitivity in the hour. 
The Roman soldiers did exactly what Psalm 22:18 says that they would do. They gambled for his cloak. The man's outer cloak is a very precious thing, and so they're gambling for it. They're callous, they're cold, they're dark. Jesus is hanging on the cross. He is bleeding out, and they have nothing better to do than to gamble for his garments. They have no reality of the moment that is occurring. And I believe that sort of is the source of the cry that comes from Christ to the Father. The prayer climaxes in verse number 19, and it says, But thou art, uh, be, uh, excuse me, but be not far from me, O Lord, O my strength. Haste thee to help me. Deliver my soul from the sword, my darling, from the power of the dog. Save me from the lion's mouth, for thou hast heard me from the horns of the unicorn. So in this last moment, in this final moment, when, he could, when, uh, when I could be rescued, thou hast heard me. That's the prayer climax. He affirms that God has heard. He affirms that the Father's silence must have been broken at this point and that he recognizes you have hurt me you will respond to the situation and the prayer leads into or ends in verse number 21 with an absolute climactic excitement of praise and it's an exciting psalm 22 i will declare thy name unto my brethren in the midst of the congregation I will praise thee. And I believe that future event that is right beyond the cross where he goes down and says, we made victory today, boys. We triumphed openly today, boys. That Satan and all of hell gathered round and all of the fiends of hell gathered round. And though every man forsook me, I opened not my mouth as a lamb to the slaughter. I did it at one time defy the name of God. And even when my eyes closed in death, Pilate sent that Roman soldier to break my leg. And yet at that very moment, divinely inserted, God would not allow my leg to be broken. Why? That would have disqualified me from the sacrifice. And that Roman soldier decided to take a pierce, a, 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 uh, a spear and pierce my side, fulfilling Isaiah chapter or in Isaiah. And so praise God, boys, we made victory today. Triumphed openly. Amen. And he lays it out there and he says, I will declare thy name unto my brethren in the midst of the congregation. That's a future, exciting, thrilling event that even erupts into a into the uh, resurrection that occurs. Triumph. Save me from the lion's mouth. Thou hast heard me. The horns of the you. I will declare thy name. He lifts up his praise. The resurrection has taken place now. And he's lifting his praise to God. It takes us right into Psalm 23. Which as I said. We're not going to be able to go. But it's a resurrected savior. That now becomes our shepherd. Praise the Lord. It's a victory. But when we look at the cross of Calvary, it's an amazing thing to ponder on. It's an amazing thing to consider. And there's so much depth to it that we couldn't possibly understand. Psalm 22 gives us the internal experience of Calvary. And it's a groaning unto God. There's something deep and more. You know, I, I think of it like this. When... There was another supernatural event. I think sometimes we miss. It's when, when the Lord was at Lazarus' tomb. And he allowed that event to occur. He allowed that, and, and he did something. The Bible says that he did something, that he groaned in his spirit. He allowed the event to occur. And when he shows up at Lazarus' tent, the Bible tells us about Jesus Christ. He was touched by our infirmities. Yet, you know, yet without sin, 
But he took it in. He supernaturally took it in. And one of the places that he supernaturally took it in, you don't see a lot of things said. But he, the shortest verse in all the Bible, John eleven thirty five, Jesus wept. And weeping is not crying. Weeping's awkward. You look hideous when you weep. You know that. You're, you're embarrassed. You're trying to cover yourself because you're embarrassed. In fact, everybody gets awkward around you. They're like, man, he's really having a hard time over there. And that's exactly what they did. When Jesus starts weeping, they say, boy, hold how he loved him. I mean, man, he's really a mess. What they don't understand is that Jesus is taking it in about how this woman has been affected, Mary. He's taking it in about how Martha has been affected. He's taking it in about how his brethren have been affected, how his friends have been affected. He is supernaturally pulling it all into himself and under absolutely Touched, being touched by our infirmities, and it breaks forth into a weeping. That's all the stuff that you don't, you just don't see it. You don't, you don't hear it because it's, it's sort of silent. But we dig a little deeper, and you think, wow, I get that. He I could never look to the Lord and say, you don't understand. You've never, oh, yeah, yeah, you did. You know exactly everything that I'm going through right now. Calvary has a lot of silence. But don't think that means it's all, that nothing's getting said. Because Psalm 22 says he's roaring under the Father. He's roaring under the Father. And he sourced his prayer out of these things. And it breaks forth into praise and he triumphs openly. Well, why did he do all that? Well, you know why he did all that. That's the only possible manner by which a man can be saved. You can't. All this, think about the cross for just a second and I'll be done. When you think about the cross, it took hundreds, hundreds of years to think of something as cruel as the cross, as, as absolutely hideous and horrible as the cross. It's, it's Satan at his worst. It really is. He would say it's his best. It's that awful. It's just as, as depraved as you could possibly imagine and as humiliating as you could possibly imagine to come up with something as a cross. What, but here's, here's the thing. A lot of people before Calvary were crucified. A lot. A lot of innocent people were crucified. Um, a lot of sincere people were crucified. To show you just how powerful the Son of God is, a lot of religious people, a lot of Christians, you know, they wouldn't have been called Christians, but believers were crucified upon a cross. When Jesus gets laid out upon that cross and he is pierced, he changes the cross. The instrument of cruelty becomes the image of comfort. You have one. Just when you drive up your church, what do you look? You look up and see cross. What do you think? Do you think, oh, the cruelest form of torture that has ever been created by man? No. You think, wow, what a source of comfort. Jesus Christ is so powerful that he, he changed the cross from cruelty to comfort. He triumphed openly. The very image that is above your cross is a, is a statement of the victory that is in Jesus Christ. He went to the cross for our sins.